Afterthoughts on CKUW 95.9 FM and as a podcast on Apple and Spotify. Stories from Winnipeg about everything and anything. You can get in touch with us by emailing afterthought at ckuw.ca. Thanks for tuning in to Afterthought. My name is Erica Weeb. And today we're talking about Jim Dirksen, who died suddenly in July, just this past July, 2022, at the age of 75. And if you live in Wolseley or really anywhere downtown Winnipeg, you are probably aware of Jim Dirksen. He was an unavoidable and distinctive figure as he wheeled his way around the community in his electric wheelchair with his long gray beard and hair and his ever-present beret and long multicolored robes and sometimes a bright green parrot on his shoulder. Jim's accomplishments as a champion for disability rights were numerous and I'm just going to list a few of them. He was a founding member of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities as well as the Manitoba League of Persons with Disabilities. He was instrumental in the inclusion of disabled people as a protected group in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Canadian Human Rights Code. He was a founding member of Disabled Peoples International, which is now present in over 100 countries. And in December 2009, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Manitoba for his lifetime of advocacy. So as impressive as all these accomplishments are, I was also interested in learning more about Jim as a person and how it was that he became this most remarkable and accomplished person. So to help me talk about this, I've got two people joining me today. First, Shauna Dirksen, Jim's sister. Welcome, Shauna. Hi there. And Harold Neufeldt, a longtime friend of Jim's. Welcome, Harold. Hi, Erica. Glad to be here. Okay. So I'm going to start with you, Shauna. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Jim's early life. Where did you grow up? Uh, you know, how did Jim become disabled and how old was he when that happened? All right. Well, um, Jim was the first of nine children born to my parents. And he... Uh, he was born in Morris, Manitoba. My family, that's where they were living at the time. And um, as I said, he was the oldest, I'm the youngest. And um, we grew up in small town Morris. Jim was born in 47. Just like uh, many, many others at the time, uh, Jim contracted polio during the polio epidemic in the 1950s. I believe he was six years old when he uh, got polio. In fact, I think the day that he was supposed to start grade one, instead of starting grade one and going to school that day, um, my mom had to take him to the doctor. And the doctor said, you should take him right away to Winnipeg. Uh, we think he's got polio. And mm -hmm. so she did that. And at that point in time, he was, he spent over a year in hospital at that time, he didn't return home for a year and maybe even a year and a few months. 
um, so he he had polio wow. um, as a young child. Yeah. Right, and and that was like that was an epidemic at that time, right? Because I know it touched my family too, in Saskatchewan, uh-huh. and there were many many children that contracted yes. polio. Right? Yeah. Yes. And in the end, how did Jim fare? How did what what were his disabilities that he was left with? Well. The funny thing about polio is actually the older you were uh, when you contracted polio, honestly, the uh, as I understand it, the worse your symptoms were and the more long-term your symptoms could be and more severe. Um, the older you were, the severer the impairment. But children got it often, luckily, and, and fared quite well. I think Jim was the oldest of four children at that time, and he was only six. Uh, my mom had a, a parcel of kids after Jim, and um, three out of the like three out of four of them got polio, and uh, none of them were as sick as Jim and didn't have lasting uh, impairments as a result. Right. They think that Jim's was more severe because he had just had um, his tonsils removed and had tonsillitis, and then had his tonsils removed, and he was a little bit. Uh, uh, vulnerable when he got sick. He was just recovering from that operation and then he was struck with polio. Mm-hmm. And really from a very young age he was uh, quite Im- impacted by polio. He was paralyzed and I think in the end he had 11 spinal surgeries. Oh, wow. I'm, maybe I'm misspeaking but I think it was 11 over the years um, to straighten out his spine and also give him more stability for the longest time jim could uh sort of support himself and transfer from wheelchair to car to um you know sitting in a chair in a room but for the most part he used a wheelchair from from very young on when he was released from the hospital he was using uh, a wheelchair and some braces and then as the polio progressed there is something called post-polio syndrome yeah. that happens to people, and that actually, um, it continues to damage muscles. This is as far as I understand it, that it continues to, to kill the muscle and to uh, block your ability to use your muscles. And no matter what physio you do, no matter what exercises you do, once that the nerve, the impulse is, is damaged, then you have no ability to use that muscle anymore. So towards the end, the last few years, he became much more um, dependent on on other people and wasn't able to transfer independently. So he had to always remain in his electric wheelchair and use a Hoyer lift to get from chair to bed. Yeah, so he needed a lot more assistance as as this polio syndrome sort of snuck up on him. Huh, interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so, so when he was younger, um, like this must, and, and obviously you were not born yet at the time. Um, uh, do you have any sense for how, what kind of adjustment this was for your family? Like, and what kind of resources were available at the time? Well, um, there, weren't a, there weren't a lot of resources. Our family was fairly impoverished, so to speak. My um, my dad did work, but the work was sporadic and out of town, and there were lots of mouths to feed. And uh, so 
when Jim got home from the hospital after a year or a bit, as I said, he was about seven, seven and a half when he came home. Then for a number of years, um, we had we had the the luck of having uh, some wonderful relatives on my dad's side who ended up helping my mom to raise all these children and to take care of them. And Jim and or one of one or two of my other older siblings would often be kind of um, spirited away by by my aunt and uncle, uh, my aunt Susie and uncle Dave, and that was near the Altona area. And so they uh, they really stepped up and gave a lot of uh, physical, practical help to my mom and dad with uh, raising the kids, and they took a special interest in Jim. And uh, he always uh, spoke very highly of them. Jim did a number of years of homeschooling because he was often in a body cast mm. after these surgical procedures that happened. And then he would end up in a, in a cast at home. And he didn't go to school until grade five. So he was um, homeschooled by either my mom or by my aunt and uncle for all those grades, grade one to four. And so that's the kind of practical help that family was able to offer. And, um, but the family was really very close. These, we, we saw each other, and I know that there was lots of interaction and lots of driving back and forth uh, with the two families from Morris to Altona to make sure that we were still connected. So, mm -hmm. Well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, considering what he was able to accomplish in his life, um, it just sort of, I, I assume that there must have been a lot of support and care for him from an early age to have that kind of resiliency? Mm -hmm. Yes. There was um, not a lot of um, financial aid, although yeah. Jim spoke about, when I, when I looked up some of his um, past interviews, he spoke about something that seemed to be really helpful for our family was that my dad was able to purchase some polio insurance in I think 1953, right before Jim got sick. And so that meant something about getting some resources and some, some insurance and some, uh, some of the costs were covered. Of course, um, back in the day, um, the wheelchairs were supplied by the Society for Crippled Children, then it was called, and um, March of Dimes and those kinds of things. There were equipment that, that he needed, and I think that was always provided because my dad also had uh, the forethought to purchase this polio insurance. So wow. that was also helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I read somewhere that there were many different waves of polio. So, <laughs> you know, so people must have been aware that this could be coming. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, good thing that he yeah. did that. Yeah. Um, so how did Jim then progress into adulthood? Did he go did he go to university? He did. He went to university as a mature student. He actually um, I think he didn't I don't think now, I'm not sure if he actually graduated from high school or not. Maybe even Harold knows that more than I do, but he did go as a mature student and he went to the University of Winnipeg, um, where he took on um, on his studies there. He lived in residence with uh, a number of roommates, and he um, he spent a lot of time kind of um, trying to find himself and 
differentiate himself from uh, from others and trying to make his way at the university. And I think he he really came into himself at that point. Huh. Uh, Harold, is that about the time that you met Jim when he was in university? Yes, actually, I, I got to know Jim indirectly to begin with by reading some of his uh, poetry and uh, short stories. Uh, the Mandela was the student uh, publication at the time, and of uh, hundreds of different submissions, Jim, always in the two years that I was there, he always had at least three or four of his uh, poems and short stories included. So he was a very fine writer. And I remember in particular one story, it was called That Night and the Storm. And when I read that, apart from it having a Mennonite author, which at that time for me was a, a rarity to find, uh, I was struck by the theme of it. And it had to do with some of the same sort of inner struggles that I was familiar with from, uh, I guess, a fairly similar background in the Mennonite world. And so I got to know him that way indirectly. And then I saw him in the cafeteria. Um, and he always seemed to be engaged and surrounded by a number of friends, playing cards a lot, for which he kind of apologized later. He thought he had wasted a lot of time at university. But that's really how I first met him. Mm-hmm. And then um, later on, he roomed with some mutual friends of ours. And uh, when I visited my friends, I met Jim there. And later on, I think it was his parrot on Cornish Avenue that attracted my attention. And I learned, I learned who owned it. And later, of course, he moved to Walnut Street. And when we moved to Westminster 27 years ago, got to know him much better and we became very close friends. Right. So the parrots, we have to uh, actually, weren't there two, aren't there two parrots? Because I just happened to walk by his house, which is also very, very, very distinct. And there was a big cage in the backyard with two parrots. Yes, there's two. Sophie and Johnny. Sophie and Johnny. (laughs) Sophie and Johnny. And he has had them for, I think that Sophie, what do you think? uh, Harold must be... 30 years old, 35 maybe. And, yeah, I, think he, I think he owned them for that long, but he suspected they were quite a bit older than that, actually. Yes. Wow. And Johnny actually was came from my brother David. And when my brother David was ill and passed away in 95, then uh, Jim got Johnny. But before that, I think he had already had Sophie, and he had a previous big, large Amazon parrot called Big Boy for a long time and then big boy i don't recall really what happened to him but jim loved his parrots he loved parrots and fish he had aquariums in some of those apartments maybe on cornish you must have remembered the oscar fish that he had harold they were huge fish and they were meat eaters and he had them and he could do he had them doing tricks and he had a whole row of aquariums you, you remember yeah. that, Harold? Well, I vaguely. Uh, yeah. I remember some horror stories about the meat-eating fish. But <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I don't think I repeat them at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that's amazing. Well, these they must have required some care. These parrots and these fish, and Jim was able to do that. Oh yes, for the most part, for the longest time, he did m- most of that by himself. And- yeah. Did did he have a job? Did he did he have an income, or or did he pretty much rely on uh, government supports, disability supports? Oh no, Jim. Uh, he worked 
-hmm. From the time he was a teenager, he worked in a variety of jobs as a, as a young man. He worked in the dry cleaners when he was in high school in Morris and did their accounts and their bookkeeping and things like that. And he actually one summer ran a hot dog and hamburger stand in Morris as kind of a, his, one of his first businesses. And then when he got to move to Winnipeg and went to university, I mean, he, he always worked. I'm not sure if he actually worked through university. I think he, he did not. But after that, he, he worked his whole life and he worked from the time he was his first job or two. He, what he was very good at, what Erica was, um, seeing the needs in the community and then applying to governments of the day for grants and making proposals and writing proposals and um, putting in applications for subsidies and grants to start programs. And so for the first, I don't know how long, I, I would think it was 20 years or so, he did that and made his own jobs and his own employment by 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 doing that, by seeing a need and then applying for um, some nonprofit status and, and getting funding and subsidy from somewhere. And then the last, I think he started, he retired in 2004 from the Manitoba government where he worked for about, I think it was 20 years in the family services department huh. under Tim Sales um, right. and was a policy analyst. Right. So he did very well for yeah. himself and was very successful. Yeah. He was also he was also often uh, called upon to um, speak at conferences. Uh -huh. uh, remember, he told me about many of his trips to as far afield as Japan and Asia, yeah. and uh, right across Canada. He was a speaker at many of these conventions uh, that yeah. focused on the rights of persons with disabilities. Right. And he was he rarely said no to an opportunity of that kind. Probably there was a little income from that as well. I'm not sure how much, but uh, he was a very busy man. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. So he 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 managed to have a certain kind of self-assuredness, or he certainly, um, you know, in order to to do the kind of work he did and to put himself out there like that. Is that the kind of guy he was? Like I'm one of the people who only knew about Jim Dirks, and I didn't know him really personally. But is that the kind of guy he was? What was he like as a person? Well, you know, my impression of Jim is that he expected to live a full and normal life in every way you can imagine. Yeah. I never saw him relinquish anything that wasn't actually taken from him. He lived fully with yeah. great energy, with passion, and with a great deal of joy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this is one of the things that inspired me about Jim is that uh, there was no holding back on the basis of any uh, reason or excuse whatsoever. He gave it full bore. Yeah. And yeah. The kind of personality he was. And you and Adrian, you and Adrian Chalice, I, I, you got together with him like regularly, didn't you? Like weekly, was it? In the past Well, while? during particularly uh, after the snow flew each year. We, uh, we met uh, usually twice a week, and we, um, we followed a series of lectures each winter on a very wide variety of subjects, online lectures, and because of Jim's uh, uh, 
you know, difficulty with transportation, we always met in his living room. Right. And we used his television or his computer monitor as, as the screen, and we watched lectures and, uh, and discussed the topics afterwards. And as I said, they ranged really very widely. Uh, Jim had a, a really an astonishing range of interests, and uh, we would always go over the, uh, the offerings together and choose something that we found of mutual interest. And uh, history, language, cosmology, physics, Eastern religions, Aboriginal spirituality, art, nature of consciousness, all of these sorts of things were the subjects of, of the lecture series. And uh, mm -hmm. apart from being interesting in themselves, the interaction between the three of us on these subjects really, I think, helped us to get to know each other better. And, uh, mm -hmm. and we plumbed some depths there together. Mm -hmm. I bet you did. I can yeah. imagine. Um, I have to ask about Jim's clothes because he was such a striking figure. Uh, was this always the case, Shauna? Did he have a penchant for like just being colorful and, you know, with the beret and with the really colorful clothes? You know, that probably started, um, it was when, with his work, when he was uh, sent to Africa working for Disabled Persons International. Mm -hmm. And when he came back from Africa, they had, uh, I think they had probably gifted him some, uh, some robes. And um, once he was there and had that experience there, he came back and he said, you know, from now on, I am going to just wear African robes. And prior to that, he had spent much of his... <laughs> Much of his wardrobe consisted of khaki, khaki green shirt and a khaki green pair of pants. And that's what he wore constantly. And when he came back from Africa, that all that changed. Hmm. And, and honestly, it was a combination of, from what he said, it was easier for him to dress himself if he could just put these robes on instead of pulling up pants and having to stand and doing all that because he was... Uh, you know, he had issues with his mobility. But it was also later as, as we began to understand that it was a way to differentiate himself from others and to basically to make a statement and to have his own personality shine through and to make people notice him, I think. And the berets were something that, that came upon when he was in a relationship with, with a woman and she got him a beret at some point and it looked fantastic on him and so th that began his his collection of berets and wearing them but the african robes were and the mukluks were also a practical thing something he could put on himself he could pull up these mukluks over his feet and wear them and dress himself and the robes and that's how it started but it really it was a way for him to make his mark and to stand out and to be recognized as something other than just a, a disabled person in a wheelchair. Yeah, the other thing I might say about that is that khaki is camouflage. Yes. Jim resolutely refused to exist in camouflage. He yeah. was out there. He was yeah. not going to hide anything. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. Could I say one other thing about his beard? Yes. Mm -hmm. he, he refused to let it be cut or trimmed, and I heard from him why. 
he applied for an apartment shortly after leaving university and was accepted on the phone. Uh -huh. When he showed up for the interview, the landlord turned him down because he was in a wheelchair. And he said at that moment, uh, he made a vow that he would never cut his hair or his beard. And he never did. And it even bugged him an awful lot when the doctors trimmed it a bit when he was in oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So I know that he, um, you know, he, he, he brought the cause of a dis uh, disability forward uh, a great deal while, um, during his life. But were there things that he was, are you aware of things that he, that still really bugged him about, you know, resources available for disability, uh, disabled people or, you know, just the way these things are set up? Was there anything in particular? You know, I would say nothing in particular, and that's because Jim's concern about human rights was a generalized concern. He would never have been happy until all the marginalized people of the world uh, had been recognized and accommodated, more than accommodated, embraced as part of society. So I think in, in all of the things that he worked on in his life, his, his, his deepest concerns always went beyond the present project. Mm -hmm. It was a generalized concern for human rights. Yes. A deep love for people and uh, an insistence on respect for all. Yeah, mm -hmm. Shauna, do you want to add anything to that? No, I would agree with you wholeheartedly, Harold. There was nothing in specific. It was, it was anything that came up that he saw as unjust and unfair and unequitable. Uh, that that would that bothered him. That yeah. bothered him in many ways, and it didn't have to do with necessarily have to do with being disabled. It had to do with any kind of racism or homophobia or you know anything that he saw as unfair and unjust was was fair game. Yeah. <laughs> He well, was quite concerned about the environment as well, yeah. and about climate change, and mm -hmm. about animal welfare, and about, you know, the health of the planet, and, and you know, feeding people. Right. And Indigenous rights. He had a very yes. high respect for, for First Nations spirituality and for their claims to the land. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. Yes. Well, I found a quote, and this might be a good thing, good way to uh, end things off. I found a quote uh, by him. It was part of a speech that he made uh, in Senegal at a conference um, in 1983. This is what he said. I sometimes think human society is asleep and dreaming a dream, where some people are perfect, beautiful, and powerful, and others are flawed, unbeautiful, and powerless. In the dream, the perfect people play their immortal parts, and the imperfect people are rejected from human life. We, disabled people, are helping to awaken humanity to the reality that all people are flawed and yet beautiful, and each one limited in his or her unique way and yet powerful. So how do you, what, how, what strikes you about that comment? Well, this, this idea of perfection in anyone was something I think Jim found offensive. Uh -huh. he, uh, one, of his, one of his great gifts to me personally was to help me, uh, always in his very gentle way, he helped me understand my own disabilities. 
and a lot of them had to do with inner attitudes and prejudices and that sort of thing. And in the end, he always claimed he had no real appreciation for music, but he did like the lyrics of Leonard Cohen. And I remember once we talked about a short phrase from one of Cohen's songs, uh, which really is a, a sermon to us all. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. And uh, he and I talked about that quite often. And we, we, we asked each other, what are the cracks in your life without which some of you would have remained unilluminated? And that was a very enlightening uh, thing for him to point out to us, that we all have our cracks and we all have our imperfections. Mm-hmm. That's just the way he was. And that's what he really believed. And that's how he lived his life. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was, sounds like an incredible person. And I want to thank both of you for talking about him today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. I've Thanks. been talking to Harold Neufeld and Shauna Dirksen. We've been talking about Shauna's brother, Jim Dirksen. And this is uh, Afterthought on CKUW 95.9 FM. My name's Erica Weeb. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time.